Well, do keep your Bibles open there at John chapter 2, where the subject is the glory of Christ manifested at a wedding. The interesting thing about the opening section of John's Gospel is the way in which the Apostle places the arrival of Jesus on the scene in the context of creation. He begins, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, recalling the beginning of the beginning, he now begins to describe to us the beginning of the beginning of the end. Because what we have here in the beginning of John's gospel, I'm using the word beginning an awful lot, I know. And you've got to work out which beginning I'm talking about when I use that word. So I'll try and stop using it. But what John is saying here is that with the arrival of Jesus, there has come to pass a new creation or the beginning of a new creation. And there are various things that that indicate that. There's obviously the the fact that it's placed in the context of the old creation and uh, and Jesus being responsible for that. Uh, It's put put in the context of, of what happens now that he has arrived, true light. Just as the sun shone at the original creation, now the true light that enlightens everyone, in other words, that brings spiritual light into people's lives, was coming into the world. We're reminded that the world was made by Him or through Him, but the world did not know Him. So here He is, the Maker is coming, He's visiting His own planet. And this remarkable thing, that this eternal one, takes on flesh. He became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. And just as you go back to the beginning of the story of the Bible in Genesis, for example, there you have the description of creation, you have the description of uh, the creation of humanity, Adam made in the image of God, and here you have Jesus becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us and demonstrating what God is like, full of grace and truth you almost immediately in Genesis move to a wedding. There is a wedding there. There's a man and a woman who are brought together by God, and a wedding takes place. And so in this new creation, we find John telling us about this incident at a wedding. So it's a, it's a story with human interest. It's about a wedding, and there's a crisis in catering arrangements. I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding that's had a crisis in catering arrangements. I've been to a million of them in my time, and uh, all kinds of things can happen. And uh, one thing that didn't happen at any of those weddings that I was at was that there was a miraculous intervention of God providing an amazing overflow of wine. Water turned into wine. And then at the end of the story, of course, there's this great and happy ending. It's a good story. It's a human interest story. But it's more than that, of course. Because one of the things the apostle has been telling us is that this is his personal experience, his testimony. He was there. He's made a claim back in verse 14 of chapter 1 that we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw the glory of Christ, he said. And now he's going to tell us the first time he saw that glory, in the first sign that he performed, that Jesus performed in verse 11. This first of the signs Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples, including John, believed 
in him. That's absolutely crucial that you see that this is the beginning of the revelation of the glory of Jesus to those people that Jesus had picked as eyewitnesses to be there, to have been there, done that, got the t-shirt so that they could be classed among the twelve whose names are written in the new Jerusalem, the foundation of the church of God. But there's something else in terms of the background to this incident. There's a man who comes from Cana of Galilee whose name is Nathaniel, and he's just been introduced to us in, at the end of chapter 1. And uh, one of the things that, that absolutely boggled his mind when he met Jesus was that Jesus knew exactly things about him that only Jesus could know. And it staggered his imagination that this should be the case. And uh, Jesus answered him at verse 50. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Well, you will see greater things than these. He's no sooner said that than you have this remarkable, this remarkable miracle. Now, a couple of things to say about miracles. Obviously, miracles are a display of power. You have to have immense power to do some of these miracles. Raising the dead, that's not a power that's available to any of our medical people in the congregation, though we might wish it were. But it's an amazing display of power. There's obviously supernatural power involved. This is not the normal thing. This is not a normal feature of life. Miracles are miracles because they're not normal. They're not built into the fabric, even though some people talk as if miracles should be the normality of our lives. The reality is they're not. They never were. They're always a bursting in of the supernatural. They're, they're historical events. They really did happen. They, they happened and people were there and they testified to what they saw. And they were usually done in public, at least before a number of people. And John describes them as signs. Did you notice that expression that he uses there in verse 11? This, the first of his signs. These are things full of significance, packed with meaning, pointing to something. Pointing to the fact that Jesus has been sent by the Father, pointing to the glory. The glory of Jesus. Later on in chapter 10, he can challenge people. If I'm not doing my father's works, then do not believe in me. But if I do them, and you can't deny I'm doing them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works. There's the evidence. There's the proof. There it is lying out there. You can look at it and you can judge for yourself. So the miracles are historical events, supernatural acts of power, but they're teaching tools, they're signs. They both happen and they have meaning. As signs, they point to the fact that Jesus' actions not only took place, but that they took place for a purpose. Well, that's the background to the story. And the focus of the story, I think, revolves around three movements here. First, there is, no, there is a believing mother. A believing mother. There's some interesting details about the, the story. So far, this is about the seventh day for which we have a record in the life of Jesus. It's introduced in, in verse 1 as the third day, probably the third day because of the link in the story between Nathaniel, who has just been introduced, and Cana, which is the place where Nathaniel came from. 
There is an emphasis, you notice, in verse 1, that this wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Galilee of all places. Can you imagine? Can you imagine, I mean, speaking to Jews in the first century, can you imagine the Messiah starting his work publicly in a place like Galilee? Galilee is a despised region. It's right on the frontiers of Israel. It's the place where the enemy, when they're coming in from the northeast, will come pouring through. It's a place where people have been intermarrying with, with other folks. And, and it's often called Galilee of the Gentiles because the Gentiles occupy it almost more than the Israelites do. It's a despised region. And yet the prophet Isaiah said that it would be in Galilee of the Gentiles that the light would shine. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light on those who dwelled in the land of the shadow of death. On them the light has come. Interesting that Jesus, the light who's been introduced earlier in chapter 1, first appears in his glory in Galilee. And he appears at a wedding Weddings were big deals in the ancient world. The, the writer understands his audience. He understands social world against which he's writing. And he knows that both Jews and Greeks understood that weddings and wedding feasts were a necessary part of a legitimate wedding. If you wanted your wedding to be taken seriously, you had to have a wedding feast. And Jews particularly, they loved wedding feasts. They still do. They were joyful celebrations. There was music and dancing and wine. Uh, those were the staples for those kinds of occasions. In fact, so significant were weddings that some rabbis even said that uh, if it interfered with any of the holy days, any of the, any of the appointed holy days, that was all right to kind of cut out the religious bit and focus on the wedding because the wedding was the more important Event That was a big thing for rabbis to say, but they said that. A wedding could last for seven days. And you could take time off work in those days uh, to go to the wedding. And this wedding was a, this was a very significant wedding. Uh, there were these water jars, quite a number of them, indicating it was a large home or uh, uh, a wealthy home. There were the presence of servants. Household servants, these people had money and these people had enough space to have a lot of people to this wedding. Now, how did Jesus get to this wedding? Did he get a little postcard saying, you're invited to the wedding of blank and blank in Cain of Galilee on whatever it was? I don't think Jesus was invited to the wedding at all, except by extension. His mother seems to be the main figure here who's invited to the wedding and his only his only uh, significance in being there, apparently, was that he was Mary's son. And his disciples, as was customary, if a rabbi came to a wedding, he would bring his disciples with him, his students with him. His disciples were only there along for the ride. Maybe they drank too much of the wine, and that's why it ran out. I don't know. We don't know any of the answers to those questions. But he's there not in his own right, but in Mary's right. Uh, and we marvel, I think, at the humility of Jesus here. We, we marvel at the fact that here he is, God the Son. Here is God with flesh on. Here is God among us. And what do you expect when God is among us? 
Well, you expect something a bit more spectacular. You don't expect him to be just one of the guests milling around in the wedding party. You don't expect that. But here's the amazing nature of the incarnation, that here is Jesus, just one of the guests at this wedding. And although they may be a wealthy family, they're not very significant. Their names aren't mentioned. Do you notice the couple is not mentioned? Jesus condescends to be obscure. And the mother of Jesus was there. She isn't mentioned at all by name in John's gospel. But she seems to have been the key person at this wedding. She may have been the wedding planner. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, The Wedding Planner. I'm full of movies, by the way, today. I'm really rolling. And uh, she may have been the wedding planner. Certainly she was well aware of the need when it arose and felt some obligation to deal with it. So that's significant, isn't it? And when the need arose, it was straightforward. Did you notice? The wine ran out. It's quite simple, really. It was an essential component to a good wedding. Wine makes glad the heart of man. Absolutely essential. This man, if this got out, would have lost his reputation for years to come. People would say, oh, you're so-and-so. You're the man who the wine ran out at the wedding. <laughs> you know, I mean, really. Oh, what a shocking reputation to have. This potential so social stigma was enormous. Uh, wine was indispensable to any properly hosted public celebration. Now, at, at this point, there's a bit of controversy here, isn't there? I mean, was this wine or was it not wine? That's a question that's raised by, by some people. I don't, want to, I don't want to mock anyone that takes a contrary view to me. <clears throat> well, not tonight anyway. And, uh, but let, let me just make one or two points here. Craig Keener in his commentary puts it like this. I want to quote him. Wine was not merely unfermented grape juice, as some popular North American apologists for abstinence have contended. Before hermetic sealing and refrigeration, it was difficult to prevent some fermentation and impossible to do so over long periods of time. Nor was wine drunk because the water was undrinkable. In fact, much of the spring water in the Mediterranean basin is palatable, and many Greeks and Romans viewed it as medicinally helpful. It was real wine. Of course, the alcoholic content was not artificially increased like it is today. My son-in-law, uh, his brother, owns a vineyard, or a vineyard, in California. And somehow or other, he has been able, by a miracle of the grace of God, to produce wine that is about 17% proof, which is really, really alcoholic. Well... You can do that today, but they didn't do that in those days. The wine had a very much less of an alcoholic content. And usually when at a meal you would serve uh, uh, two to four parts water to every part wine. Undiluted wine was considered dangerous. Now, and now I know that talking about wine will offend some people, so let me put it to you like this. If, if it offends you to think that this wine was real wine, then 
please go by your conscience. Don't offend your conscience by believing what I'm saying just because I say it, okay? If, uh, if your conscience doesn't let you drink wine, it's a very, very important thing that you don't go against your conscience because, not because drinking wine is wrong, but because whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And if your conscience can't take it, abstain from it, period. The Bible tells us to do that. Well, we can pass over that little controversial bit there and get back to the story. There was a crisis, and his mother confronts him with the situation. Usually women and men were separated at these kinds of celebrations, but in a larger complex where there were various homes backing on into a common courtyard, it's likely that the guests were milling around in the common courtyard, and there Mary was able to speak to her son. And you see Mary's faith in action. She simply states the need with the implication of a request for help. She acts on the presumption that Jesus will answer her request. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. She's not telling him what to do. She's just informing him. I can imagine mothers doing that. I'm not telling him what to do. I'm just telling him what the problem is. They have no wine. These are, the, these are the first words you hear from the mother of Jesus in the story. But John is assuming by the time he writes this gospel that if you're a Christian person, you've already read Matthew or, or, Mar, or, or, or Luke's gospel, and you know that Mary knows. You know that Mary knows the secret. You know that Mary knows that her son is this supernatural child who's come as the Son of God to be the King of Israel. You know that she knows. And it's against that knowledge that she has that you have to read these words. Mary's faith is coming to the surface here. It's bold faith. It stands alongside bold faith from other women in the biblical story. You think of grieving Mary, who had lost her brother uh, Lazarus, the sister of Martha, and how grieving Mary comes boldly to Jesus, boldly asking Jesus to do something about it. Or here, Mary herself in the other gospel writings, when the angel comes to her, you remember, and announces this amazing, staggering news that, her, that she is pregnant, that her conception is, is a work of the Holy Spirit, an act of God, a, a creative act of God in her womb, providing what was necessary for her to have a male child by an act of God, knowing, knowing that her that her marriage had not yet been consummated, knowing that the penalty for sexual infidelity by a betrothed woman was death, Mary had accepted the will of God. It's an amazing story. I want you to know that Mary's acceptance of the will of God when the announcement of the angel came to her is one of the most staggering illustrations of believing faith that you'll ever find anywhere. Mary believed God. Let it be so, according to your word, she said. She believed God's word. She submitted to it. She followed it. And Mary became a model of a believer. You can see her do this now. She is taking this problem to her son. She banks her faith 
on the word of her son. Do you notice the other thing she says? Not only does she say to him, they have no wine, she says to the servants, do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. She banks everything on her son. She is a believing woman. St. Augustine suggested she had to learn that, the, that her whole relationship to Jesus as a disciple was more important than her relationship to him as his mother. And this is where she begins to learn that lesson. Because if we see the mother's faith, the second thing we see is an obedient son. An obedient son. I want you to notice this. He's obedient, but he's not obedient to his mother. In fact, his answer is a rebuff. It has an edge to it. It's more of a complaint than an outright refusal. Jesus said to her, woman, that's an unusual word. It's not disrespectful. It, it was often the normal greeting to a woman that you, 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 that you met or whatever. It, it was respectful. It was a normal greeting. But it was not normal to use it of your mother. It was not normal to use it of your, your mother. There, there is a sense in which by even using it, he is establishing a degree of distance between himself and other woman. And he goes on, he uses a Semitic expression that effectively says, mind your own business. This is not your business. What does this have to do with me? He's saying to his mother, more graciously than I'm about to put it, he's saying, mom, this is above your pay grade. You don't call the shots here. He is distancing himself from his mother. He is clarifying the boundaries. He's not being offensive, by the way, but he is beginning to place boundaries on their relationship. And here's the reason. Jesus knows what's at stake here. She doesn't. She, he knows what she doesn't know. As he puts, and you can see this, as he puts his life and his choices within the larger plan of his heavenly father. Do you remember when he was a 12-year-old boy? He had, even then, drawn a line in the sand. I must be about my father's business. Here he's drawing that line in the sand again, much more clearly. He says to her, my hour has not yet come. I'm here with an agenda. It's my Father in Heaven's agenda. I'm here with a plan. I'm going according to the plan. It's my Father in Heaven's plan. He's teaching Mary something. He has come as an obedient son, but he's not come as an obedient son in relation to her, but in relation to him, his heavenly Father. You see, Mary's faith was real faith, but it was an uninformed faith. Mary was yet to factor in the cross. His mother, in other words, has no idea what this sign is going to mean for Jesus. This sign is going to culminate in the cross. 
That's where this sign is going to go in John's Gospel. This is absolute the beginning. John actually spells this out for us in verse 11. He says, this is the beginning of Jesus' signs. The hour that was coming. This is where it starts and it will culminate in his final hour on the cross when he is crucified. Even though this is a relatively obscure place, this miracle is going to kick off the movement that will end up with Jesus hanging on the cross. Mary didn't realize all of that. She didn't know all of that. Jesus sees the big picture. The hour is the time of the cross. It's interesting, actually, to look at this word hour in, in John's gospel and to see it used in a variety of ways. Here the hour is not yet come. He talks about an hour when there'll be universal worship of spirit, in spirit, and in truth that's coming but not, and has already is arriving. He talks about the hour when the dead will be raised, a resurrection of the dead that is coming, but is somehow already arriving as people come to spiritual life. He talks about the hour when those who are in the tombs will be raised, the, the hour when he will be revealed for the whole world to see who he is, the hour of his death, which has not yet come. The hour of his glorification and death. He'll be glorified in his death. The disciples' hour of trial and temptation. And ultimately the hour of his glorification. When he enters into the kingdom of his father. Says to his mother, you've no idea where this is going to lead. You've no idea where this is all heading. This has nothing to do with you. This has everything to do with my father, with his hour, with his time, with his plan, with his scheme, with his great redemptive program. It's all about him. And in the end, Jesus' hour of glorification would bring in the last day's reality, which we begin to experience, but the focus of it all is on the cross. The cross is the first phase of his entrance into his future glory. But rather than stifle Mary's faith, this rebuff doesn't put her off. She presses on. She tells the servants to do whatever he says. And so she both recognizes Jesus' authority and demonstrates her expectation that somehow he will find some way he can do th something to change the situation. She believes him. She believes in him. And she stands back to let him work in his own way. <clears throat> you notice Mary does not dictate to him what he must do. In terms of the fulfillment of God's purpose, there is no room on the stage for Mary and Jesus. There is no room on the stage for both Jesus the mediator and Mary the mediatrix. As she is held to be in the Roman church. There is no other room on the stage. It is Jesus alone. This very passage deconstructs the whole Marian theology of the Roman church. But what Mary does do as a believer is give us a rule for living. Look at this rule for living. Whatever he says to you, do it. 
That's a command that should be in our minds every time we hear a sermon, every time we read the Bible, every time we sit in a Bible study and discuss what the Bible is saying to us. Whatever he says to you, do it. Well, the story ends with the, obe- the glorious Lord. What will he do? What will he do? He could do nothing, of course, and spoil the party. He could have lectured them on overindulgence and said, if you only, you know, watered it down a bit more, there would have been enough wine to keep going. Instead, we're told that there were six stone water pots. The apostle underlines that. He underlines, do you notice, the purpose of the water pots. In verse 6, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding between 20 or 30 gallons. They're big water jars, these, and they're for ritual purification. There is a link, in other words, between what we find here in chapter 2 at the beginning and what we're going to find next in the next section when Jesus cleanses the temple of impurities. There is a link, and the link is Jewish ritual. Jewish ritual. That's what these water jars were there for. These pots were made of stone, which meant that their contents would be less liable to Levitical impurity. By the way, if you're ever dictating onto your computer and you dictate Levitical, it will come up with live a tickle. (laughs) At least that's what mine did this week. Live a tickle. And actually I looked at it and I thought, what was live a tickle meant to be? What was Levitical meant to be? And then it dawned on me it was meant to be Levitical because, you know, I think in theological terms, the Levites, uh, of course, Levitical. Anyway, the Levitical impurity. So the stone pots would prevent impurity. These water jars then were associated with ritual purity. And the point of this story is that these water jars were used by Jesus for a new purpose. Something new. In this symbolic world of John's gospel, something new is bursting onto the scene. Immediately following this, you have the cleansing of the temple. In other words, even here, there is a direct challenge to the religious practices of the day. There is a signal being sent in this action at the wedding that Jesus is going to overturn even these ritual purification actions. It's the implied announcement that the Father's hour is beginning to be fulfilled. You think of the implications. It's huge. First of all, there's the size of the water pots, holding perhaps 180 gallons of water changed into wine. It's a creation miracle. Absolute creation miracle. Taking something and turning it into something else. Taking water, turning it into well-aged wine. When God made the world at the beginning, He had to make it old, didn't He? In order, in order for, it, for all the bits to be there that we need in order to survive. And so similarly here, miracle of creation. Secondly, there's the language, the language of fullness. Do you notice how that's emphasized? Fill the jars and they filled them. They filled them. The language of fullness is an important language because uh, 
In John's gospel, people are not only filled with food, but they're filled with joy and they're filled with grace and they're filled with truth. And Jesus is full of joy and grace and truth. And he wants his disciples to be full of joy and grace and truth. He doesn't want us to be a miserable Lord of old creeps. He wants us to be people who are full of the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. In fact, in this gospel, he says, I've come that you might have life in all its fullness. And so the servants fill the pots to the brim and measure the fact that in this gospel, Jesus gives the Spirit without measure to his people. If you look at the Hebrew Scriptures, the, the, what we call the Old Testament, you'll see that in the Hebrew Scriptures, they're, they're abounding in abundance of wine, which is a characteristic of the glory of the coming kingdom. And so when Jesus does this, he's drawing from that expectation and uh, he's asserting that the time of salvation has become a reality right now. And then the third thing, I think, is the quality of the wine served. He has it tested by the steward. He says, take some to the steward, the top man who's the expert. Take it to him. And what's his assessment? You've kept the best wine until now. And that's a summary statement. That summary statement is absolutely vital. It's telling you something about Jesus coming and Jesus' work. The key word is the word now. It stands out in stark relief to Jesus saying to Mary, My time has not yet come. But now in his time, with this miracle, you have kept the best until now. Here it is in the human story. What Jesus comes with is the best and it has come now. It is in the world now. It is for people now. He has brought new life now. And John is very conscious of the symbolism that he includes in the stories that he tells. So later in chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Jesus talks about the water and goes on to explain the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus has heard about the water being changed to wine. Jesus talks to Nicodemus about the water that is the Spirit. The Spirit will come into our lives. Well, the effect of the miracle is immediate. The servants start to pour it out. The people find it's the best wine that's ever graced a human table. They know, the servants know, a miracle's taken place. The gospel, as it goes forward, you cannot help but contrast their knowledge, their knowledge that Jesus did this with the lack of knowledge on the part of others. The arrogance of the elite is accentuated by the humble response of ordinary people. The humble, poor, believe. That's not, by the way, to disdain education or influence. The Bible never does that. Selina, the famous Countess of Huntingdon, a friend of George Whitfield's, once famously remarked that she was very glad, as a lady of nobility, she was very glad that the Apostle Paul had said, not many noble are called, and not, not any noble are called. But it's also true to say that apart from the Apostle Paul, most of the early Christians were ordinary folk with an extraordinary Savior. Well, the father of the groom was saved from embarrassment. The party was saved from being a disaster. And the disciples saw 
firsthand the glory of Jesus. John brackets all Jesus' signs with an emphasis on glory. This first one here and the last sign recorded in chapter 11, verse 40. The glory. They saw the glory. In Exodus 16, Israel sees God's glory by his signs in the wilderness, providing food despite their unbelief. But Jesus is not being Moses in this story. Jesus is being compared to God in this story who revealed his glory to Israel. He is the glory. They saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They saw his glory at a wedding. His works revealed his character and his identity. And when you've been introduced to the glory of Jesus, there's only one response that he's looking for. It's the response that they made. Did you notice what they did? His disciples believed in him. My question to you is, do you believe in Jesus? Those disciples were there so that they could see this and be eyewitnesses of his glory, so that they could tell you. Your job is to view their testimony, is to ask yourself if this is the testimony of people that you can trust. To listen to the, the balance of their testimony, to see how in, in an almost unself-conscious way they tell their stories. And Then you have the question, will you believe? Will you believe? Will you believe that this Jesus is the only one that can bring what's new into your life, what's new into our world, this new thing that is life-transforming, life-changing, life-enriching. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that tonight, as we reflect backwards to Jesus' coming, and then in a moment as we sit around this table and reflect on Jesus now, exalted, inviting us to come to his table, placing in our hands a foretaste of that heavenly banquet that we heard about at the very beginning of this service, that tonight we would lay hold of him, that we'd rest on him and receive him by faith. In his strong name we pray. Amen.